All right, let me pray for us, and then we are going to look at 1 John. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 John 2. Let me pray. We'll get into it. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for the chance for us to be able to look at your word. Lord, I pray that you would give me clarity of thought and give me uh, the ability to speak well as we are talking about a difficult topic. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we are working through this, that we will learn exactly what it is that you want us to learn. And as is my custom, I would ask for you to pray for me that uh, what I say would be accurate and would be correct and be beneficial and that uh, I would say nothing out of harmony with the gospel. If you would, pray that for me. Father, I thank you for the chance to be able to prepare and to study. God, I pray that uh, during tonight you give me the fortitude to be able to finish well and to be able to work through this uh, text. God, I pray that you give me clarity of thought and that what I say would be beneficial and accurate. Um, and that, Father, that you would send your spirit to help uh, me in this task and for all of us to understand. Uh, we thank you, Lord. We love you and we need you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, we are going to be running through a difficult section of text uh, tonight. And I just want to go ahead and say this. Um, I have a kidney stone right now. Um, so if I'm like done at some point and we're like, okay, that was great. Y'all have a good night. Like you now know what's going on. All right. So there you go. All right. This is where we were last week. We were looking at verses 12 through 17. Um, we basically looked at um, this command that finally comes up for the first imperative in all of 1 John. It was in chapter one, or chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, we talked about this little poem section that's in 12 through 14. And then we really talked about the world. And so on that note, we talked about this graph quite a bit. And so we've had the conversation where I've asked questions like, who is we? Uh, we're going to be asking that exact same question a little bit later on today. But we had to ask that question with what is the world? And these were some options that we came up with. Um, and the main idea that we took away from this graph was that if we import our idea of what John means by the world in chapter 2, verse 15, if you import that back to chapter 2, verse 2, when we talk about propitiation and that Jesus is the propitiation for not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, that that can get us in hot water, right? So he clearly means something different. It's incumbent upon us to understand what it is that he means by the world, right? So speaking of 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in you. I need at least three more of y'all to rehearse 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 for me. I think Christine went last week, and somebody else over here was it? Kaylee. Have at it. Yes, ma'am. Perfect. Who else wants to go? First John two fifteen. All right, Tuck. There you go. What translation? ESV. That's what I thought. Somebody else? Who wants to take a stab at 1 John 2.15? Go ahead, Gary. All right. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 9. Who wants to go with that one? We don't move on until we get three more folks. Just give it an attempt. You don't have to be completely correct. Perfect. And she even tagged on 1 John 1, 9 at the end. That Awana training or something similar coming out. 1 John 1, 9. Who wants to go? I told you all this is what we were going to do. So if we have less time for discussion, Caitlin. All right, got the purify of all, purifies of all unrighteousness. Good. And did I see? All right, have at it. Perfect. I will go ahead and give you the heads up. This week, y'all are going to start memorizing 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. 316. You should be able to remember the number at least, right? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It's 1 John 3.16. That's the next one we're talking about. Word? All right, so we have recapped up to this point. Let me tell you where we are heading tonight. We are in verses 18 through 27. This is now going to be the doctrinal test. If you remember, whenever we got to 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, that was the test of obedience or a uh, test of either obedience or morality, depending on what you want to call it. And then we get to verses 7 through 17 is like a big chunk. Um, that's basically talking about the test of love or the test of societal impact, right? And what we were talking about tonight is going to be the test of doctrine, the doctrinal test, the test of belief. Are you tracking with that? So the way we're going to do that is we're going to spend two different slides talking about antichrists. Right, because that word can be plural, and in First John chapter, excuse me, First John two eighteen, that word is used twice. Once it's singular, and once it is plural. Hint, hint. Okay. Then we're going to talk about the three sections of verses eighteen all the way through twenty-seven. Okay. I have discussion questions that we're going to throw up there at the end if we have time for it, but I do think that we're going to this conversation is going to flow out fairly easily as we work through this stuff. Yeah. All right. So y'all know where we're heading. All right, so let me just say this right out the gate. When you hear the word Antichrist, what comes to mind? Not everybody at once. John. What you see in movies, okay. Yeah. Okay, so someone who cr uh, claims to be Christ, but is preaching heresy. Okay, we're going to talk about that word heresy. In fact, you even saw it up on the screen. Let's just pause for a second. Do you know where that word comes from, heresy? It comes from the Greek word heteros, right? You know what that word means. Heteros just means other. So heterosexual is someone who is sexually attracted to another sex, right? That's all the word means. Is her heresy just means another doctrine. It carries with it the connotation of not only another doctrine, but a false doctrine. But that's what the word means, right? It just means other, okay? Heteros. What else springs to your mind when you think of the word antichrist? The opposite or against Christ. I like that. 
Say again? Tribulation. Tribulation period, right? That springs to a lot of people's minds, yeah. Any other thoughts? Left behind movies. Left behind movies, yeah. Yeah. I think that may even be what stands behind John's idea of what you see in the movies, right? Okay, so let's start here at the most basic point. Antichristos is what the word is. Antichristos comes from two words. Anti, which means against or counter, and Christos, which is the Greek word for Christ. And Christos is just the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, right? So against the Messiah, against the Christ, right? There's another word, or sometimes you will see people that they will translate this as in place of Christ. And I want you to reject that wholeheartedly, okay? That is not the idea that John is using here. Um, there's a word, uh, ante basileu, which is translated as viceroy, which is like in the place of a king. So instead of against a king, basileus, it is in place of. So you get like a vice regent. That is not John's connotation here, okay? Like it is clear from the uses that we're going to look at, that is not what he means. So we are much more firmly planted whenever we go with Ed and say against Christ. Now, that right there might call to mind all sorts of other things for you, right? So this is what we're going to do. We are going to look at where this word is used. You all want to take a stab at how many times this word is used in the New Testament? A lot of times, a few times, what you think? I told, you, I told you it's twice in verse 18, so it's at least two, right? A lot, okay. Somebody else want to say, no, Alita, it's not a lot. It's a few. All right, Tuck is saying six. Anybody else want to price his writing? Wait, what? 51, oh, never mind. I was, leading, I was reading six. 51, so there you go, Alita, he says. All right, does anybody want to price his writing and say 50? How about four? It's only ever used four times, and all four of them are by John. Well, let me rephrase that. It's only used five times in four verses, because we see it twice in verse 18. So there's literally, it's only used in four verses. Incidentally, I'm going to read all of those to you right now. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to work through these verses and then we're going to take each section as we come, all right? So the first usage is in there in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. And this is what it says. Children, it is the last hour. And as you may have heard, or as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists, plural, have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So what can we take away from that concerning the Antichrist? He is not a singular person. That Antichrist is coming. You've heard that Antichrist, whatever Antichrist means. He says he is coming. I'm saying he because it just makes sense in that in English. But then he says that many Antichrists have come. So what can we deduce from that? It's not a singular person. Okay, that's number one. The second place we find it is a couple verses later in verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So we can take two things away from this. The Antichrist in 1 John 2.22 denies that Jesus is the Christ, Antichristos, right? You see all that terminology is coming up. He's not in place of, he is against. He denies that Jesus is the Christ. 
and specifically denies the Father and the Son. Okay. Does this spur anything new in your mind? Or is this like, okay, maybe there's something different going on here. The third time we see this ver- uh, show up in a verse is in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. And this is what 1 John 4, and I'm going to pick it up in 2 and 3. I'm going to read both those together. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And so I have it in brackets there that that denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That is in chapter 4, verse 2, which is the first part of the sentence, where in verse 3, he says that the Antichrist denies that Jesus is from God. Okay? So we can now take away those two things about what or who or what these people, the Antichrists, are. Okay? And then lastly is in 2 John, verse 7. 2 John, verse 7 says this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So what you get from chapter or, uh, first John, or, sorry, Second John, verse seven, is that the Antichrist denies the coming of Christ in the flesh, and that that person is a deceiver or, in some translations, a liar. Okay. Let me just pause right there. Does this make sense? And this is me lifting literally word for word what the ESV translates in those verses about the Antichrist or Antichrists. Plural. Any questions about this so far? All right. If you got those, yeah, okay, go ahead. Yeah, so the question is in verse 18, you as you have heard that Antichrist is coming and that many Antichrists have come, the question is, well, where have they heard that? My assumption is John. John is, in fact, the only biblical author who uses this word. And I told y'all back in the first week and in the intro that John is going to assume that his readers are familiar with the Gospel of John and that there are going to be certain times that he is going to use a phrase that we do not know exactly what he means, but almost certainly his original audience, who he was with, did know what it meant because he talked to them about it. And so the answer to that question is most likely, where did they hear that? From John. Okay? Part of his teaching. Most likely in and around Ephesus or Smyrna in the late uh, 60s or so. Maybe the 70s. Okay. So there's your good... This is, and I'm being serious, this is all the biblical data there is on that word, antichristos, or antichristoi, if you're in plural, in verse 18. Same word. These are every occurrence right there. Now, let's build off of that. Here's the next thing we need to see. All that we can say, everything that we need to say about the Antichrist, everything that is explicitly mentioned as coming from those verses, that forms the foundation of what we believe. Nothing else. Like, you understand what I'm saying there? We take 
what we think the Antichrist is and means, not from some extrapolated theology. You first take it from where John uses those words and what he means by those words. Does that make sense? Because if we were to flip that around, we would be doing what we call eisegesis. We would be taking information that's outside of a verse and reading it into Antichristos. And, and we don't do that, right? We do exegesis. We take information out of those verses. Are you tracking with me? So the explicitly mentioned information and all the biblical data that we have about Antichristos, that is what forms the foundation of what we believe, nothing else, yeah? And here's what we can say clearly from those four verses, five occurrences. Antichrist is a spirit and a person to come. Right? You can just, even if you just look at verse 18, you could deduce that much. And what I mean by a spirit is not like a spiritual being, but I mean kind of like an air, an influence, a philosophy of life. Maybe this is similar to what Paul is talking about with the elemental principles of the world. Like these are things that govern people's activities. And that's what we'll see later in chapter four, whenever we see 1 John 4 mention Antichrist, Antichristos again, it's going to be in this discussion about what the spirits are, right? So he's talking about like an influence on individuals, okay? So Antichristos, the Antichrist, is a spirit and is a person to come. And the reason I know it's a person to come is verse 18. Yeah? Make sense? However, there are possible to probable connections throughout the scriptures that are present. But let me be very clear. Every connection that we have to Antichristos, that idea as a person or a spirit, is at best an interpretation and at worst, speculation, and nothing but speculation. You understand what I'm saying there? We have to interpret to get to Antichrist somewhere else, because that word is not there. Now, can you have sure footing? Yeah. I think there are plenty of places where we might say, well, that might be Antichrist, and I'll be like, yeah, I don't disagree. Let me give you three of them. Number one, the abomination of desolation from Daniel chapter 11 and Daniel chapter 12, right? That whatever that is, whoever that is that Daniel's talking about, seems to be a fairly decent case that it's kind of the same thing or person that John is talking about in at least Revelation, which we'll get to in a second. Okay? However, you can't say that the abomination of desolation from Daniel 11 and 12 is the Antichrist because that word does not exist until John. You see what I'm saying there? So we have to do interpretation to get to that point. Second place where we might have a, a clear connection is in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, whenever Paul is talking about this man of lawlessness or the son of destruction or son of perdition, I think is the way the uh, uh, King James translates it, right? So whatever Paul has in his mind, it probably lines up fairly clearly with John's conception of Antichrist but again, you have to interpret to get there. We're not pulling that word out. And then lastly, in Revelation chapter 13, 1 through 10, either the beast or the dragon, or if your interpretation allows it for the second beast, that could be the Antichrist. But here's what I would say. At every one of the levels that we talked about, whether it's Daniel, 2 Thessalonians, or Revelation, we're not talking about the Antichrist. In many ways, we're talking about like the spirit that is in, 
empowering or animating that person to do the things they're doing. I think that's a much more clear footing that we have to understand what is going on with Antichrist, okay? Because remember, at the end of the day, all that we can say about what the Antichrist is and does is explicitly on the screen. Now, does that lead the son of perdition or the beast or the abomination of desolation to do other things? Yeah, but they are going to be found as someone who denies the father and denies the son, denies Christ came in the flesh. You see how all that's kind of working together? And, and what I'm really trying to do here is I'm not trying to like destroy somebody's like theological interpretation of any of these verses. What I'm actually trying to do is help us understand what John wrote in 1 John chapter 2. Because if we're importing all that other stuff into 1 John chapter 2, we might be going awry with what John means in chapter 2. Does that make sense? All right, so I want to pause right there, give you a chance to like let all that wash over you. What do you think? Thoughts or questions you have about this? Paul. Okay, so the question was, if the Spirit is present, the Spirit of the Antichrist is among us today, does that mean that the Antichrist is here today? Okay, now I want to pick on you to say, you said the Antichrist as though there's only one ever. And what I said earlier, and even up here on the screen, is that the Spirit of the Antichrist is a person to come, and that kind of leads us to, like, that's ultimately going to be fulfilled there. However, John says, Antichrist has already come. And there's more to come. So maybe whenever we pick apart the idea of the, there is one singular Antichrist, I don't think that's what John has in mind here. So I would say in that sense, I don't think that's what John's getting at. However, if what you mean is, is there a person alive today who is what we consider a Antichrist? I would say if they do any of those things, yes. If they deny that Jesus came in the flesh, if they deny the Father and the Son, if they deny that God, uh, Jesus is from God, if they deny that Christ is come in the flesh and they are attempting to deceive especially, then yes, that person is Antichrist. They are ante against Christ. Okay. Yeah. So the question is, if you run into somebody who professes one of these things, like, yeah, certainly, I deny that Jesus is the Christ, right? I deny that. The question is, well, do I stop there? Why would you? Literally every single person in this room was in that position at some point in their life, either out of ignorance, you just didn't know, or because you were antithetical to the claims of Christianity. You might have been railing against Christ, at either point, you would have denied your need for Jesus to save you. Does that make sense? And so at some level, I do want to demystify like the Antichrist. Well, okay. Like, so the question a lot of times that I used to get was this. Hey, do you think the Pope is the Antichrist? Okay, one, what do you mean by the Antichrist? Is there only one? Because if you're thinking there's only one, no, because First John says, well, that guy's already come. Well, that's not what I mean. Okay, well, then what do you mean? Well, is he against Christ? Okay, well, does the Pope 
deny that Christ came in the flesh? Does he deny the Father and the Son? Does he deny that Jesus is from God? If he does any one of those things, then yes, in a very casual sense, he is antichrist. He is against Christ. He denies right doctrine concerning the faith because that's what John is writing about. John is not writing in this section about some eschatological figure that we've blowing up to be. He does mention eschatological issues because he says this is the last hour, right? But that may not mean exactly what we think it means either. So we'll get there in a second. Does that make sense, Paul? So I would say, no, you don't just stop because you should then share with them, well, this is what Christ has done. Let me give you some biblical data. Let me tell you about the gospel. And if they trust in Christ, would they then be anti-Christos? No, they would be Christos, whatever the positive of that, right? Cross-Christos, I guess, right? They'd be a Christian at that point, right? Which is me, right? So here's big takeaways. The Antichrist is not just some ultimate end-time figure. There's a spirit that animates people to deny these tenets of the faith that are foundational and that there will be more to come. It's not a singular person. And they will culminate, I do think, at the end of history with somebody who is going to embody this completely. So if that's what you mean by the Antichrist, no, because the world's not over right now. Right? Okay, let me pause right there. Any other questions? Because this is a big issue, and I know I'm probably stepping all over some toes, not necessarily because I'm trying to like combat a theology, but rather because what we have thought about Antichrist has been so entangled with all these other things. And what I've just done is said, nope, if it doesn't come to this, then maybe we're thinking about it wrong. So I want to give you some time to process that. John, you got a question? You just kind of, I like it. Like a cat back there. Sue, you got anything? So we're perfectly clear on the Antichrist, yeah? Or, or everyone's afraid to ask. It's as clear as mud. Okay, so let's, let's, let's talk about that for a second. What about this is unclear? Because I want to help kind of demystify it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. 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 No, I get you. Okay. So that's a great illustration, and actually leads me to the next point to make it even less clear. Okay. Her illustration was it's like a diamond. Like, it's very easy for us to say, well, that's a diamond. Like, if you know what a diamond is, you can test it. It's a diamond. But then when I say, okay, well, which part of it's the best? And you're like, well, where's the light coming from? Where am I looking at it from? Which vantage point do I have? Okay, absolutely right. I think you're absolutely perfect and on that there. Whenever we were in the summer and we were working through the Psalms, one of the things that I was trying to trace as a theme was the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. Whenever you read Antichrist, I think at some level you should read seed of the serpent. Now, does that mean that that person who is the seed of the serpent, who is fighting against the natural order that God has ordained, does that person mean, or does that mean that that person is like the worst embodiment and is Satan himself? No. 
In a very similar way, someone who is anti-Christos does not mean that they are Satan themselves, but it does mean they're being animated by that same thing that is against God's natural order and the way that he has designed life to work. So in that sense, you're like, yeah, it's really clear, but how do you identify it? And the good news is, I do think I have an answer. And that's this stuff right there. Whenever we are looking at trying to identify who is anti-Christ in that regard, John gives us a list. It's right there. Yeah. Now, the implications of that might be far-reaching and mind-boggling, which I grant. I, I completely agree with that. But what I am saying is, it's not so unclear, though. Yeah? Here we allow for mystery, but not confusion. I think that applies at this juncture. Ed, you got a question? All right. Clay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Avoid. Right? Be wise around them. Yeah. So the warning here, the warning here is, hey, Antichrist, the spirit, and even the beings are all around, right? You yes. Have to be aware of that. Yes. And, and so that's what he's saying. I mean, this is this is like a, this is a warning to this uh, this house church. Yes. Okay, all right, so what Clay just said there is that it'd be easy just for them, just like it would be for us, if we could just label somebody and say, hey, there's the guy, avoid him. But his point is like, well, that's not as clear as that because the spirit of Antichrist is kind of in and among the church. And so what John is doing is he is writing to that church to try to help them identify this. Let's bring some context in. What section do we find ourselves in this book? What have I told you this is the test of what? Belief or doctrine, right? What came immediately before this section in verses 15 through 17? What did John warn them against? Right? And what else was that bigger section about? Remember the graph that Tuck drew so spectacularly? He showed me in his notes. Love and specifically don't love the world, because the world can influence the church. Are you seeing that? So we're actually about to run directly into what Clay is talking about, because what we need to do is, one, we need to situate this big title of Antichrist biblically, get all the biblical data, and there it is. It's on the screen, every bit of it, yeah? Everything else is either interpretation or, in the worst parts, it's speculation. Dean. Okay. 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 Yeah, that's a great point. So Deanne was saying, okay, am I tracking and saying that John is just trying to get us to understand and to be able to identify where this is, or is he saying identify and then avoid? And what I think will become very clear is he's not saying avoid. Right? In fact, what he's going to say is you don't have to avoid them because they left, which is exactly what Clay just said. 
So I think if I haven't answered this question sufficiently by the end, I'm coming back around to you and we'll stitch it back together. Okay, Layla. There you go. Yes. So the question was, is denying the same thing as not believing in? And I would, func I would ask you this question by saying, functionally, what's the difference at the end of the day? What's the difference between I deny that Jesus is the Christ and then I die? And what's the difference between that and I didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ and then I die? What happens? It's functionally the same, right? How many times, uh, Sue, I've looked to you because when we talked about what does John mean by love and your answer was, or excuse me, what does John mean by hate? And you said, not love. What does, the, what does John mean by walk in the darkness? Well, the opposite of that is light. There's these clear dichotomies. Like there is a singular choice that is either one or the other. There's no gray area. So when we talk about is there a difference between denying and not believing in, maybe philosophically, but what I would say is functionally, you end in the exact same place at the end of your life. Yeah? Which is why this whole section is couched in the section on the test of obedience, or I'm sorry, the test of belief or doctrine. Cool? All right. Everybody take a deep breath, man. Let's just get off of this stuff, man. This is, this is wild. All right, so here's, I just want to pause just for a second and tell us, like, this is the purpose of Bible study. Like, this is, this is why we do what we do. Um, that whenever we get to a section like this, we can't just import our meaning from other places. You have to first look at the biblical data as it's on the page, first and foremost, right? Once you read whatever the text is, you might make right observations. And from those observations from that text, you make good interpretations, and then you apply from there. But if you skip the observations from this text and import other observations, you've missed what was on this page. I'm not saying you were wrong from somewhere else. It just means that we've imported it incorrectly. The same way if we took our understanding of the world for HaKosmos in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, and we imported that backwards to 1 John 2, 2 about propitiation, then we would have a very different understanding. And exactly like Paul said last week, he said that would actually lead to universalism that everyone is saved. Well, you have to make the observations as they are on the page. Yeah? With that being said, I, I assure you, everything else that follows in this section, much easier. Yeah? So let's read that. And I want to read 18 through 21, and then we'll take these in sections from there. This is what 1 John 2, 18 says. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, most likely from John, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. So you know it's the last hour how Antichrist has come. That's how he introduces this whole section. Okay, Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no truth is of the lie. Or of a lie, right? 
There's no way we can get to truth by lying, is how he ends this whole section, yeah? So, what can we say about this? What is the last hour? The last hour is anything between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. More specifically, his ascension and when he comes back, right? So if you remember whenever uh, Anthony was preaching over Christmas and he talked about the five stages of the saving work of the Messiah, uh, that there is this incarnation and then there is, oh my goodness, now I should have written these down. Somebody's got notes, y'all can look it up, right? But the last one is his second coming, right? So the whole point there is that the last hour has been at least how long now? Just ballpark it. Two millennia. Don't you think there would have been an opportunity for Antichrist or the spirit of Antichrist to work his, you know, his will in that time? Yeah. Just like it would have been with John. He said, yeah, I told y'all there were going to be guys who were going to deny Christ and you've seen them. Some of these cats were with y'all and they left. Yeah. So first off, the last hour that John's talking about, you're in it, right? Second thing I think we need to talk about is that there is a clear distinction between us and them, or technically us and they. So here's our dumb question. Who is us? And who is they? So those that are us are those who believe in Christ. Okay, does anybody want to add to the us? Because I think you're absolutely right, and we could go even a little bit further, possibly. Who is included in us in this writing? Who's writing this? John. He's including himself in this group, right? So that should give you a little bit of a hint, right? Is there anything else you want to add to who us is? Believers, yep. Did the believers leave or did they stay? They stayed. So that then leads us to, well, then who is them? Who is they? They are unbelievers. And more precisely, we could say about them, what did they do? They denied Christ. They, and we will get to, they spread that belief when we get to false teachers. Absolutely right. That's what chapter 4, when we talk about the Antichrist there, but you are absolutely right. They are most likely some of these other teachers, but what did they do physically? They left. Why did they leave? What does John say? Now, you just made an interpretation there, Christine. She said because they didn't have genuine faith. Now, I do think that is the right interpretation, she said that they left because they did not have genuine faith. But that's not exactly what John says. What is it that he says the reason why they left? They were not of us. They didn't belong to us. And what do we know about us, Paige? We're believers. So what does that tell us about them, Christine? They did not have genuine faith. They were not actually believers. So you see how the Antichrist conversation actually looks really weird when we import like Daniel and Revelation and 2 Thessalonians into exactly what John is saying right here in verses 19, 20, and 21. Now I'm not saying that it doesn't eventually lead there. What I'm saying is here, that seems to be a different conversation than what John is having. Yes? Does that make sense? Okay, so there must be this clear distinction. And then we get to... 
this other clear distinction that we talk about us and them. And what John says in verse 20 is you, and the you there is us, because he is addressing them now. He says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. What's he talking about there? Did John run around and licking some dude's thumb and then swiping their forehead or getting some oil? Is that what he's talking about? The indwelling of what? The Holy Spirit. I think what John's getting at there is the anointing is a reference to the Holy Spirit. If you are a genuine believer, as Paige has said, and as Alita has said, then you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And that is called a charisma, right? There's this gift. There is this anointing that comes to you where you have been given the Holy Spirit. Yeah? And I think that's really critical because what does the Holy Spirit do? He teaches us. Somebody read 1 John 4, I'm sorry, not 1 John, John 14, 26 for me. And then somebody else look at John 16, 7 through 11. I'm going to need that quick so we don't run out of time. The Holy Spirit teaches us. So what does John 14, 26 say? Second person who gets there. 14, 26. The Holy Spirit who comes in my name will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance everything I taught you. Okay? What does John 16, 7 through 11 say? By the way, counselor, helper, and advocate. Was that what your translation said? John, counselor, same person, same being. It's the Holy Spirit. Go on. So you see how Jesus is saying, hey, when the Holy Spirit shows up, he's going to teach. And he actually doesn't even say just teach believers. He's going to teach you all things. But when it comes to unbelievers, he's going to convict them of their sin. Like think of like a court, like their conviction is settled. The judgment's about to fall, right? Which is where that verse ends. So this anointing is a reference to the Holy Spirit who teaches us. And the knowledge that we have is not only right, it is public. Read with me one more time, verse 20. But you all have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. This is a dig at what I'm thinking is proto-Gnostics, these guys who thought that there was this secret kind of knowledge that you needed for salvation. And what John says is, no, you were given the Holy Spirit. He teaches you all things, and anyone can have that. It's not secret. It's public. And since it comes from God, it's correct. You seen how that works? However, anything that's being spread as a lie, man, that's got all sorts of sources, but not a single one of them are God. You get that, right? Like when it comes to soteriological matters of how we are saved, you don't get there through lies. You get there through true revelation, and that comes from the Holy Spirit. You seen that? That's John's entire argument in 18 through 21. Any questions about that before you have to move on? Does this make sense? 
Now, does this make the whole anti-Christ conversation make a little bit more sense that he's going so hard in the paint about an anti-Christ to someone who de uh, denies that Jesus has come in the flesh and that Jesus is the Christ and that he's from God? Well, it's because if you're denying those things, then how are you ever going to end up at the truth? And the answer is, you won't. Yeah? All right, other questions? Cool. Let's look at verses 22 and 23 then. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has the Son. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And so now we're talking about the nature and the effect of heresy, of heteros, like those differing views of doctrine and, frankly, false doctrine. Here it is. False doctrine will lead you further from right understanding of Christ, not closer. It just won't. Like, I don't understand how we think, well, I can listen to some bad theology, some guy who's preaching bad sermons about bad interpretations and not be influenced by that. Like, you will be. You will be, right? Which is why it's so important that we as believers who have the Holy Spirit residing within us, that you are trained and equipped to be able to interpret for yourself. Yes, to see what the Bible says about itself. False doctrine will lead you further from a right understanding from Christ, not closer. So this is exactly where you were heading in your mind about what do these guys do? Well, they taught false things. Well, yeah, and they did this by their lifestyle, but later they're actually going to be literally called false teachers by John. Okay, here's the next thing. To deny that Jesus is the Christ is to implicitly deny his incarnation and his sonship. And what I mean by that is, yeah, you're not denying explicitly, you're not saying the words, I deny that Jesus came in the flesh. That's what the incarnation is. But when you go look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, guess what? That is exactly what he says there. So he's actually going to address it there. So what is said implicitly here, he makes explicit in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Okay, so just go look at that. But to deny that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, means that you think that God didn't have to become a man and die for my sins, which is propitiation, chapter 2, verse 2. We've already talked about that. Are you seeing how those things work? And they denied that they didn't need this salvation that came through Jesus. And what he's going to explicitly say in chapter 4 is, yeah, they deny that Jesus came in the flesh. He's not the Christ. And if they deny that Jesus is that Messiah, they are also denying that He is of the Father. He is from the Father. He is the Father's Son. How much truth lies in that statement? Oh, well, Jesus really wasn't God's Son. And for believers, we immediately go, whoa, like that's the big one. Like that's the thing. Like that's really the thing we talk about the most. Yeah? You see how that no lie comes from the Father and that how false doctrine doesn't get us closer to Christ, it gets us further away. When you think about what the spirit of Antichrist does and how that works out in false doctrine, it always minimizes the person or the work of Jesus Christ. Great teacher. Great guy. Never met him. Great moral teacher. Lived an awesome life. Was he God? Nah, probably not. Well, maybe he was God, but he didn't die for your sins, much less mine. Well, maybe he didn't exist at all. He's a great fable. You see how at every level we're either denying some crucial element of who Jesus was, his being, his personhood, or his work of salvation? At every step, it's going to deny those things and minimize it. So, 
to deny that Jesus is the Christ is implicitly to deny those things. And here's the next step. Whenever you look in verse 22 or 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. You cannot have fellowship with the Father if you deny His Son. Go back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Go back to chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, verse 9 there, and you will see that fellowship with us and with the Father is a big deal. And if you deny Jesus' Son, how are you going to have fellowship with the Father? Because only the Son can reveal the Father to us, and only He can reconcile us to Him. Matthew eleven twenty seven 27 says this, Jesus speaking, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. You seen that? Like, yeah, we have the Holy Spirit residing in us today. That's because Jesus has sent Him out to be that one who convicts us of sin, right? But also what Jesus is saying here is, how are you going to have fellowship with God the Father if I didn't put you in a position where you could? And the answer is, you won't. So, what's the difference between denying and not believing in? Functionally, I think we land at the same place. That's what verses 22 through 23 are. The nature of heresy is making little of Jesus, His person, and His work. And the effect is, you don't have the Father or the Son. Because how could you? All right, y'all tracking with that? Questions? Comment. Comment. Yes, sir. Yeah, so that comment there is that for John, the Father and the Son are inseparable. It's clearly laid out in the Gospel of John, but you could also find it in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that in God, that there is God, and there is no light, or excuse me, there is light in Him, and in Him there is no darkness. And what we see is the corollary for darkness is light, right? And that anytime you read darkness, you could also read lies and hate, and therefore, if he has light, he has nothing but truth and uh, love, right? Then you skip down to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. And at the very end, he talks about that we have an advocate who is with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Well, then when we read a little bit later in chapter 2, verse 20, when he talks about the anointing of the Holy One, I just blew right past it. Who's the Holy One? There's at least three options, and I don't know if I know for certain which one John means. What are those three options? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit Himself, right? You see what I'm getting at? Like, so Clay, you're absolutely right. John knows no way to like tangibly separate them. Yeah, are they distinct? Certainly. But does he view this as if you deny the Father, are you going to have a chance at recognizing the Son as your Savior? No. If you deny that Jesus is your Savior, are you going to have any chance with having fellowship with the Father? No. 
Absolutely right. Any other comments or questions about this? Ed. There you go. Excellent. Yes. All right. So Ed's comment there is we have a greater responsibility as Christians now because we now must know what is right and what is wrong and who is saying it because they might have convincing arguments. And the people that are going to be saying it, are they coming from outside of the church? Where are they coming from? The greatest threats to the church have always been from inside. You get that, right? The greatest threats have always come from the inside. Because, I mean, whenever Jesus tells Peter, hey, the gates of hell are not going to overcome this, like, then there's no army that's going to knock down enough churches for the church to go away. You see what I'm saying? But we can absolutely ruin our witness. We can absolutely ruin our doctrine. We can absolutely mess that up by not knowing the right things. Incidentally, we have two safeguards that help us in that. Yeah? I'll pay you later for that, that transition, Ed. Any other comments or questions from verses 22 through 23? John. We are in a spiritual war. Ephesians 6. Yes. Yeah. They do bring others along with them. Those who are spouting false doctrine are necessarily going to entangle others in that. And so I think Layla's question about, well, what are we supposed to do? Just identify them or identify and avoid? Well, there's another option. There's identify and confront. There's identify and share with love. Yeah, it's another option. All right, so let's read verses 24 through 27 before we run out of time. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. There you go, Clay. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Okay, uh, if I remember correctly, I think the word meno, abide, uh, shows up 11 times in like eight verses here. I'm not a rocket surgeon, but that might be important now that I've seen it. Yes? Okay, so what do we need to see from this? There are two safeguards. Here's number one. The message that you have heard from the beginning, and I am going all the way back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and that's when we said that which was from the beginning in which we proclaimed to you, that's the apostolic message. That is the apostolic word. That is the first safeguard. What's another phrase or word we would use for our context to say the apostolic teaching or the apostolic word? It's God's word, yes? We view that as authoritative. We view these men as inspired. We talked about this in the whole series, right? So the first safeguard is the word of God. This is an objective thing. I could say, oh, you think you're not an antichrist? 
Let me show you what the Antichrist does in these four different verses and the five times that word is used, and you're doing all of those. I'm not calling you Antichrist. John is. That is objective. That is outside of me, and I'm pointing to it. Okay. Here's what we can learn from this. We have to work at remaining in the Word and having it remain in us. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son. What can we now conclude about those who left? What did they not do? They did not abide in Him. They did not have genuine faith. They may have had false doctrine. Let me be very clear. Does that mean that there is zero hope for them moving forward, period? Certainly not. Certainly not. There was this cat named John Mark who absolutely deserted Barnabas and Paul. And he wrote a gospel afterwards. He becomes one of Peter's closest confidants whenever he's in Rome. And even Paul later in life says, hey, send that guy to me. He's very useful to me. Yeah? So just because you deny at one point doesn't mean that you are just completely written off. The inverse is true. If you abide all the way, then yeah, you've got eternal life. Like that's the promise of the reward. But it's not necessarily certain the exact opposite. Well, if you leave once, you're done. Like no, because that happened to a guy in the scripture named Peter. Don't forget that. Peter denied Christ how many times? Three. So don't tell me that there's no hope, right? So should we avoid them? Wisdom should dictate at times. Maybe it's not wise to interact in every circumstance, but like we have the example of Christ going to these guys. Yeah. So I think that should inform our view. So, but we've got to work at having this remain in us. Eternal life is the result of us abiding in him and abiding in his word. Yes. However, in the meantime, you can be deceived. You can. Right? That's literally what 2 John verse 7 talks about. It's like, hey, he's a deceiver. He's a liar. That's Antichrist. Right? Somebody can try to deceive you. That's what John says. Incidentally, this is now the third purpose of writing. I am writing to you because there are folks trying to deceive you. And you should also read, so don't be deceived. <laughs> right? Don't be deceived by what they're telling you. And how do you not be deceived? You abide. You let it remain in you. Yes? Tracking with that? That's the first safeguard is the apostolic word. The second safeguard is the anointing that you have received, the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit there in verse 26 and 27 specifically. And he says that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate teacher. We've already read those two verses from John 14, 16, uh, 14, 26, as well as uh, later on. Um, in 16, 7 through 11. Yeah. So we've already talked about how the Holy Spirit is a teacher. So He is our ultimate teacher. However, you also need human teachers. Let me tell you a very wrong observation to make from this verse that will completely cloud your interpretation and then jack up, even worse, your application. Read with me there in verse 27. The anointing that you Christians, right Christians, who have the Holy Spirit, the anointing you received abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. What could possibly be the wrong interpretation or observation to make here? Go ahead, Caitlin. You don't need anyone to teach you. And if I don't need anyone to teach me, that's the observation I'm making. Well, then, then I shouldn't listen to teachers. 
And so anytime somebody tries to correct me, I'm going to tell them no, because I have everything I need. How do I know that's false? What is John doing in writing this letter? He's teaching. So what is it that John is really talking about here? He's talking about there are people who are coming to teach you something that is obviously not correct. You have no need of that. And the way you will have no need of it is you've got the Word abiding in you and you have the Holy Spirit saying, uh, that's not right. Because no truth is a, or no lies of God. Right? And if this dude's saying it and it's wrong, it ain't from God. How do I know? I've got the objective reality and I've got the subjective experience of the Holy Spirit residing within me. And I think John's point there is, you got everything you need to be able to identify these cats. Yeah? If you need some verses, 1 Corinthians 12, 27-31, Paul explicitly mentions teachers not once but twice as people that are given to the church. And then later in Ephesians 4, 11-12, he mentions teachers again. Teachers are necessary. Thank God, because that's what I do, right? If that weren't true, I don't know what I'd be doing, right? Cool? All right, so here's some final thoughts. Let me give you some final thoughts about what we're supposed to do all this. I'm going to read this quote for us, and then I'm just going to explain it. This is what Danny Aiken says about Antichrist. He says, Whether he, the Antichrist, is alive or no, I cannot, I will not, and should not speculate, and neither should you. That's God's business. What I do know is he will come, and the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well. Okay, so what am I supposed to do with that, Danny? Well, don't be speculating as to whether or not the Pope's the Antichrist. What are you going to do about that anyway? Right? What, what are you going to do about the guy who wears a funny hat? Which he doesn't wear nearly as many funny hats as uh, his predecessors, right? What are you going to do about that? Do you have any real interaction with this person? No. But what about the guy who's sitting next to you that may have gone to church with you several times or for several years, and he starts saying some really outlandish things? Should you identify that person as the Antichrist? Like, no. But what you should do is be aware that that is what is animating that false doctrine. If he's trying to spread it, run to the Word, run to the Spirit. That's what we do. You seen that? Here's the second thing I'd say. We have got to be clear about what is worth dividing over and what is not. Right? One of the things that, and this is again, this is Danny Aiken here. He says this, We must have the courage to expose them, speaking of false teachers specifically, we must have the courage to expose them even though it hurts to do so. It is always better to be divided by the truth than united by error. If we are placating somebody because of their personality and just their force of will, and we just go along with whatever they say, even though it's wrong, shame on us. If we are dividing God's body, His bride, over dumb things that do not matter, shame on us. Because it's not the ultimate thing. You know what is pretty ultimate in this text? The test of doctrine. Do you have the right doctrine? Do you believe the right things about Christ? We can work the rest out in grace and in love, but if, if that's wrong, everything else is going to be messed up, and I, I can't get down with that. So my point is, I think we should be clear on what is worth dividing over and what isn't. This probably a good thing to be dividing over. Yes?
Here's the last thing. The doctrinal test is the most critical among the three. So even though graphically I even gave you all these three um, circles up there, there's these three tests, the test of obedience, test of love, and the test of doctrine. Make no mistake about it. You mess up the test of doctrine, you're not going to get the test of love or obedience right. You're just not. Yeah? And importantly, the test of doctrine in 1 John is, what do you do with Jesus? Not, what is your view of infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism? By the way, what is your view, Sue? Exactly. You don't even know that? How dare you? You're not a Christian. Like That's a dumb thing to divide over. Exactly. Nobody knows what infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism is. Nobody. Complete speculation. See, I'm not making those words up. I promise you. Okay, here's my point. The doctrinal test is what did you do with Jesus? And I think we can trust the Holy Spirit to work for those of us who are in Christ to mold us into the character of Christ, into the image of Christ, and for us to understand rightly what it is that has been handed down for us to help us get there. Yeah? That much is true. Paul. Absolutely. And that's, yeah, so Paul's comment is you got to be, you have to be willing to divide over what is worth dividing over, right? Is that what you said? Or did I miss here? Say it again. Yeah, you can easily divide over what is worth dividing over. And you mean by that what exactly? And you can be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, a, there's wisdom there that comes from Paul in 2 Corinthians where he says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Remember, he's writing that to Christians, <laughs> right? How would we examine ourselves to understand whether we're in the faith or not? Well, John has given us three tests. Are you obeying? Are you loving? And do you have the right doctrine, right? And I think there's a lot of wisdom that goes into this. I know I'm putting like very, very bold statements up there that are necessarily nestled with nuance and grace and other tidbits of truth that maybe I haven't fully grasped yet. I'm fully aware of that. But what I am saying is in John's argument in 1 John, it's really clear. What they do with Jesus? They didn't believe he was the Christ. So they left. And there's evidence that they didn't have right faith because they left. All right, so here are the discussion questions. I want to ask two of them, even though we're already over time. Even if we don't get very far with it, I'll say this. How do we avoid speculating about who the Antichrist is? How do we avoid speculating who the Antichrist is? Because let me tell you, it's alluring to start reading Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation and to kind of let our imaginations go from there. John? Mm-hmm. Yep. Rather than what others are saying also. Yep. Yep. So John's comment is when you're reading Daniel, read Daniel. Understand what Daniel says first. It doesn't mean don't apply what Daniel says to somewhere else or something from Revelation back into Daniel. He says, first, understand Daniel. Once you have that, 
then with wisdom, head west, right? That's what you need to do. But there's a, there's a preliminary step there. Paige? Yes, okay. So let me synthesize Paige's comment there. A lot of times whenever people are wrapped up in the conversation about who the Antichrist is or who he will be, we kind of lose sight of who Christ is and that he is going to return. Well, let's make much of who Jesus is. And if he's not in the frame, well then he's, whoever we're talking about, it's not him at a minimum. Whether it's the Antichrist or not, like it ain't Jesus. So let's start with that. I think that's really wise. Clay. How they identify forgeries. Yeah. They don't look at fake money. They get to know real money and deal with that and the deal. And, and once they know that, it's easy to see the counterfeit. Yeah. Because it's, it's not the real thing. The real thing. It's not genuine. And here's the last question I have for us. Uh, why did those antichrists desert the church and break fellowship? Why? The answer is what John says. Well, they weren't of us and they didn't abide. Yeah, but practically, why did they leave? What do you think was going on there at the church? Say again? The house divided can't stand. House divided can't stand and so what was happening as the truth was being proclaimed. There were some folks that did not accord with the truth and they left. And my point here is like, we should make much of the truth. Yeah, John? Yeah. Yeah. And had this, you know, just the, the conviction on his life. And, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of assume here that they had the conviction yeah. in that church and they didn't want to stay because they had God's Holy Spirit mm -hmm. was moving. Yeah. And there was this. There was this conviction that came from the Holy Spirit that strengthened believers and convicted those who had this sin in their life. Yeah? Paige? Yeah. 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 Just where Jesus was from was enough to get him ostracized in certain places. So having the truth dictate to us what we should and shouldn't do, sometimes it's going to be hard. Yeah. And when the truth was dictated to them what they should and shouldn't do, they popped smoke and left. Yeah. All right. Y'all can think through those other questions. Here's our homework. Keep working through. Read the section, the chapter, the whole book. Keep rehearsing 1 John 1, 9 and 2.15 and start memorizing 1 John 3.16. Next week, we are going to be in verses uh, 28 all the way through 310. It's kind of an odd section. I told you all at the beginning of this whole series that 
um, outlining 1 John is notoriously difficult. In fact, all three of the books that I am reading um, outlined our section completely differently, and they stopped at different places too. So, yeah, that's why it's an odd break, because it's an odd break. So be it, right? So we're going to be looking at verses 28 all the way through 310. Let me pray for us, and then we will get out of here. If you got questions, come talk with me. Father, I thank you that you have given us clear instruction as to what it is that we are to believe and who we are to believe in, and that is your son, Jesus. God, I pray that you would help us uh, by strengthening us with your spirit as to what is right and what we ought to do as a result. And then, Father, I pray that uh, you would make much of yourself through that process and that you would conform us into the image of your son through it as well. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. All right, if you need anything, holler at me.